Always great to see you, Journey. Uh, we're in week number three of our message series that we're calling Suffering Loves Company. And our, our heart in this is we want to address how God talks about pain and suffering in the Bible. It was kind of interesting as Chris and I were kind of thinking about how we might unpack this series together. He came up with the idea like, why don't we just look across the breadth of the biblical narrative and look at characters in the Bible who experience suffering. I thought that would be a great idea, kind of a fresh way to unpack this topic. And he said, well, why don't we just come up with a list of the people in the Bible that suffered and we'll choose people from that list. And so when I finished texting him, I got out of my car and I started to walk into the coffee shop. And while I was there, I just started to, in my mind, try to think about all the biblical characters that I could think about, Old and New Testament. And as they were coming to my mind, I would just check it off. Like, did they suffer? Yes. Did they suffer? Yes. Then yes, 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 yes. By the time we got into the coffee shop, I texted Chris back and I said, uh, could we make a list of people in the Bible that didn't suffer? Because that would be a way shorter list. The reason I tell you that is because we understand that this message of suffering, it permeates the Bible. That thread of suffering, it covers almost every book, every character, on almost every page you see suffering. It permeates the Bible because it permeates life. And you know that, don't you? Suffering has touched your life or those around you. It's not something that is not apparent to us and what we're experiencing. The challenge that I had as a communicator is to think about how do I approach this deep and personal topic of pain and suffering and not just throw out there some kind of pat answers to answer this incredibly difficult question because it's just not that simple because there are people in this room, I know this to be true, that you are going through things that are enormously challenging, incredibly painful, incredible suffering. At the end of our 1130 worship gathering last week and you know, if you're ever here at the 1130, you know, we stack the chairs and a man came up to me. He was just visiting our church and he said, I'd love to visit with you for a few minutes if I could. And so we leave a few chairs here in the front for our high school ministry. So we sat down and uh, I just said, what's going on? He just dropped his face and he just sobbed. He just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. He couldn't even talk. And as I sat there, I just thought, this guy doesn't need a three-point sermon from me. He needs me to just put my arm around him and sob with him. Just listen to him. This is what I believe to be true, is I know that what was happening in his, his heart is happening in the hearts of people all over this room. Given the opportunity, if we could just sit down you would pour out your heart about the challenges in your life, incredible pain and suffering. I know that for some of you, just to get here today took everything that you have. To say, I'm gonna do it one more time. To be with God's people, to try to lift my eyes up to heaven and worship God. It took everything you had. That's why I can't just give us pat answers to really, really difficult questions. But here's what happens in our life. When suffering and pain falls on our life, what it begins to do is it starts to percolate up questions. Last week as we looked at the life of Joseph, we looked at that question, we're like, God, where are you in all this? God, where are you at? 
But today we're going to look at the question, and I think this might be the most common question that any of us ask. We ask it almost instinctively, reflexively, and it's the question, why? Why? God, why me? Why them? Why us? Why do I deserve this in my life? Friends, I don't think that there is any other book or any other character that addresses that question better than the book of Job. I don't think that we can actually understand how God thinks about pain and suffering without coming to grips with the Old Testament book of Job. And I want to just highlight to you right now a resource that I think can be helpful in this area of pain and suffering. A book by Timothy Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It has been incredibly helpful to me in my own life, but I also want to say that I've leaned in heavily to his material for our message today. In the midst of the book of Job, we're going to see that three questions bubble up around pain and suffering. The first question I just said is, why do I suffer? A second question that needs to bubble up in our heart is, why do I love God? And the third question is, why do I need people? Why do I need people? Now, the book of Job starts out, and, jo- and God is praising Job. He's saying all kinds of incredible things about him. He is good. He is a godly man. He is blameless and upright. God is saying, nobody, if you look at his life, nobody can make a charge against my servant Job. I mean, he was a great dad. He was a great husband. He was deeply devoted to God. He was just and compassionate in how he dealt with the people around him. And to top it all off, Job is incredibly successful and wealthy. Job had it all. The text actually says he was the greatest man. Quite a resume from God, huh? But then the readers are given a place where the curtains open up And they get to view into this scene. And this scene is what we would call a great heavenly council. And it's got God and it's got angels all gathered together. But you know who else is there? Satan. Seems like kind of a weird guest. Doesn't seem like this heavenly council would be his jam. But he's there. And here's what happens. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6. One day, the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord. And the accuser, that's a title for Satan. The accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked Satan. Satan answered the Lord, I have been controlling the earth, watching everything that goes on. Then the Lord asked Satan, have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He is blameless, a man of complete integrity, He fears God and stays away from evil. But Satan replied to the Lord, yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has and he will surely curse you. To your face. All right. You may test him, the Lord said to Satan. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't 
harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. As the text continues, the wheels come off for Job. He loses everything. All of his earthly possessions, and he loses his kids. Now I think there's, there's all kinds of suffering in this world. You take my bank account away, I'd be bummed. But you take away my kids. We need to understand the depth of the suffering that was inflicted upon Job that Satan brought into his life. But let's watch Job's initial response. Verse 20, Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. But then he says this, praise the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Don't know that I could do that. But Job didn't sin by blaming God. Instead, he fell to the ground, put his hands in the air, and he worshiped God. Job started out really well. But like I said, when pain and suffering falls on us, questions start to percolate up. Struggles in our heart start to come to the surface. And they did for Job just like it did for us. And he came to the place where he started asking that question, why? God, why do I suffer? I want to say it again. I promised you no pat answers. But I want us to look at the book of Job and say that he dismisses, this book dismisses some of those pat answers right away. The book of Job just diminishes them. One of these pat answers is what I would call the traditional moralist or religious view of pain and suffering. And if I were to describe it, I would say it goes something simply like this. If you do good, good things will always happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. That's the religious moralistic answer. It's just a simple cause and effect. There's just a rational way to always look at pain and suffering. But here's the problem. The book of Job absolutely blows that theory up. Why was Job picked out for suffering? Was it because of something bad he did? No, it was exactly the opposite. Job was picked out because of his goodness, the fact that he was blameless. The moralistic, religious answer to pain and suffering, it just doesn't hold up in the book of Job. But on the other hand, we would have maybe what I would call like a irreligious or secular view of pain and suffering. And it would go something like this. Pain and suffering, because it is so evil, it must mean that God doesn't even exist. Because if there was a God who was good and he was in control of all things, these things wouldn't be happening. These things are happening. Therefore, if God exists, he's either evil in and of himself or he is powerless to do anything about it. But when we look at the book of Job, he takes both of those simplistic answers to pain and suffering and he dismisses both of them. 
Tim Keller, in his book, he describes it this way. He says, when we read the story, we see the remarkable way that this dialogue teaches the asymmetrical relationship of God to suffering and evil. An asymmetrical relationship. What does that mean? I'm really glad you asked. What it means is that God gives Satan permission in the midst of this text to bring pain and suffering into Job's life. But he draws a line. He says, Satan, you can go this far and no further. Now, I think the modern mind, I'll just say my own mind, it just cringes at the fact that God would even allow that to happen to Job. Why is it that God is doing this? There is profound philosophy here, friends. And I want us to understand this because so many people think that there's like this dualistic idea of how this world is run. There are these two equal and opposite forces, one for good, one for evil, and they're continually in this cosmic battle with one another. And it's when evil wins, that's when pain and suffering comes, and when good comes out of it, the good is winning. But the Bible says there is no such thing as this. There's no such world. God alone is in control of this world. He is completely in charge. He has total control over Satan. And he's the one who says, Satan, you can go this far and no further. He is completely sovereign. And you see in this story, what we understand is we look at how this suffering came about in Job's life. God was not the cause of the suffering. He did not will the suffering to happen. That came from evil, but God allowed it to happen. But then we step back and we start to think about this moralistic view that when bad things happen to me, it's because I've done bad things in my life. And when good things happen to me, it's because I've done good things in my life. Friends, I'll be quite honest with you. There are things that are attractive about that to me. One is because it actually makes sense to me. It seems rational in so many ways and You know what it does? It puts me in control. I'm in control because I can say, God, if I do A, B, and C, you are obligated to do D, E, and F. If I do this, you have to do that. End of story, guaranteed. We look at the book of Job, completely blows that idea up. These things didn't happen to Job because he did something wrong. They happened to him because he did righteously. There is complete mystery, especially from Job's perspective. As he looks up and sees what's happening in and around his life, he never gets to see this backstory of what happened between God and Satan. He never knows. He never sees it, even at the end of the book. Never. And that's why he stands there looking up, asking the question, why? And there was such a mystery in it to him. I love what Peter Kreft said. He said, Job is a mystery. A mystery satisfies something in us, but not our reason. The rationalist is repelled by Job. And Job's three rationalist friends were repelled by Job. But something deeper in us is satisfied by Job and is nourished. It puts iron in your blood. 
Friends, if we're going to understand suffering in this world, it's not because we're going to get an answer to why. It's because we learn to embrace mystery. That we don't know why, and we may never know why. Job never knew why. To that question, why do I suffer? Then as we continue, we get to see that Job was forced to answer a question himself. Another question, why do I love God? I mean, really, why do I love him? Why do I follow him? Why do I choose to serve him? Now, God looks down at Job and he says, look at him. He is amazing. God points him out as the pinnacle, the model of someone who loves God. But Satan, the accuser, he points down at Job as well. And he says, uh-uh. God, I mean, come on, God. Look at what you've done for him. Look at everything that you've provided for him. You think he loves you, but he's just not that into you. You take all of his stuff away, and he is going to drop you like a bad habit. Job is going to be moving on. And he said, I can prove it. Just give me the opportunity to take his stuff away, and let's just see what happens. You see, this isn't just an attack on Job. This is an attack on God. Satan's no dummy. He knows if he can take the pinnacle, the best that God has to offer, and he can prove he's just a phony. He's just a fraud. He's just using you. God, you're just a means to an end. He's exploiting you. If Satan can prove that, he just says, God, you are a complete failure. You can't even make one person that loves you for who you are. You're only making people that love you for what you do for them. So God just says, Satan, you can test him. Why? So we can see what's in the heart of Job. And God's going to expose it. You see, because friends, there is a big difference in this world between an external religiosity, just doing religious things, and a heartfelt love and devotion and commitment to God. There is a vast difference between those two. And that gap, friends, let's just be honest, it exists for all of us. That, exists, that gap exists for every one of us. Do we love God for what we think are the perceived benefits that he brings to us? Or do we love God purely for himself? Just for who he is that we worship him. Because it, it forces us to come to the fact like, do we have a relational, intimate connection to God? Or is he just simply functional in our lives? How do we know how do we know whether or not that gap exists in our life? Just think about regular relationships in our life. For me, on this planet, there is no relationship closer to me than that of my wife, Carmen and I. Here's a little picture of us. Isn't that cute? So cute. I could look at that picture. You could ask the question, how do I know that she really loves me, for me. I mean, you could look at that picture and just say, well, obviously she just loves him because he's like ridiculously hot. <laughs> you didn't have to laugh 
so loudly or so quickly. A chuckle would have been fine. But how do you know? How do you know if she loves me for me? Think about relationships. What happens in a relationship when you think that someone loves you for you and then something changes? Maybe there's a financial reversal and suddenly they're gone. Maybe you're in a relationship and, you're thinking, and you come to the place where you say, you know, I'm not going to sleep with you. And they're gone. In those cases, you think, I thought they loved me for me. But they loved it, not just me. How do we know if that exists for us? Do they love me for me or do they love me for the perceived benefit? It's the same with God. It's the same question. Do we love him just for him? Just for who he is or what we think that God can do for us? How do we know? If that gap exists in some way for all of us, how do we know how big that gap is? I'm not gonna say that this is prescriptive in terms of how God does this, but this is what I've seen in my own life and experience and in countless people around me. The thing that brings this about, the thing that allows us to see this is suffering, suffering. That's what we see here in the life of Job. It shows him what is that gap? What is the reason that I love God? Because when we get to the place where we start drowning, when we're suffering and there's pain in our life, what is it that we grab for? That's gonna tell us what we really love. Is it the things of this earth? Is that what we're gonna try to grab a hold of and keep drowning with it? Or will our heart be shown to say that, God, you are everything to me. I want you above all else. And when we're suffering, we grab a hold of him. Why do you love God? Suffering surfaces this in our life. Here's what God knew. God knew that Satan was ultimately wrong about Job. God knew what was in his heart. But Satan didn't know it. This heavenly host of people, the beginning of Job 1, they didn't know it. And honestly, friends, Job himself didn't know it. But as suffering started to come down in Job's life, his true affection rose to the surface. And this story showed everyone that was there and for millions of readers, for centuries upon centuries, has shown us that Job was the real deal. God was proved right. He loved God wholly for himself, not because of what God did for him. And here's what we've got to grab from this story. Satan wanted, more than anything, to bring pain on Job and to discredit him. Say, he is an absolute fraud. But by God allowing, as hard as that is for us to think about, God allowing Satan to do that in his life, to bring pain and suffering, God gave him enough space where the exact opposite thing happened. Job was shown to be the real deal, someone who really loved God. God gave Satan just enough rope to hang himself. The exact opposite happened of what Satan wanted to happen. I love how Tim Keller said it, so I'm just gonna read how he explained it. He says, the story of Job is a smaller version of what God is doing in your life and in the history of the world. 
God has now mapped out a plan for history that includes evil as part of it. This confuses and angers us. But then a book like Job pulls back the veil for just an instant and shows us that God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. That's what Job shows us. But friends, where we sit, as we look up to heaven, and as we experience the pain and suffering of this world, it's not always that clear to us how God is accomplishing that. That's why there's a mystery. That's why we've got to believe God is accomplishing it, whether we understand it, whether we know it, whether we're ever able to answer the question why. God is accomplishing his purposes. The last question about suffering that we see in the book of Job is the why question of why do I need people? See, if you've read the book of Job, you know that like the middle 34 chapters is Job going back and forth with his friends, his moralistic friends, trying to figure out, Job, what did you do wrong to bring this about in your life? And it's not even the point. And they're proved wrong in the end. But I want you to notice this. Job's friends, they started out great. Here's Job's friends, Job chapter two. It says, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and they threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. And then listen to this. They sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. That's the kind of friends that we need. We need friends that in the midst of suffering, they're willing to just be, to be with us, to cry with us, to mourn with us, to get their arms around us and comfort us. Suffering loves company. Suffering needs company. We need each other. God's plan to walk through suffering as a family is each other. To experience him and to experience his grace and to experience his comfort. It's us doing this together. But friends, there's some pitfalls that I believe that we can walk into that we need to know about ourselves and we need to know about others so that we can walk with each other well through pain and suffering. I wanna highlight some of those pitfalls. The first one would be isolation. There's just something about suffering that just feels like it causes us to be cut off from the world around us. It just feels like we, we need to get away because it just seems like no one in the world really understands what's going on inside of me. And you know what? They probably don't, but you need them anyway. We've got to learn how to move toward people. But friends, on the other side, maybe you're not the one in suffering, but you're seeing suffering in the lives of people around you. Move toward those people. I cringe when I look back at my past and I think about how many times there were people in and around my life and world in places of pain and suffering and I stayed away. I stayed away because I said to myself, I don't know what to say. 
And I didn't. I didn't know what to say. Then if you think you won't go because you won't say the right thing, then don't say anything. But go be with them. Just get your arm around them and cry. Just tell them that you love them. Just tell them that you're sorry, that whatever's happening in their life has happened to them, but be with them. We've got to pull people out of isolation. A second pitfall that I think can happen in the midst of pain and suffering is feelings of shame and condemnation. And I think the reason that this goes so deep within us is because this worldview, this moralistic worldview that I described earlier, that when I do good, good things happen to me. When I do bad, bad things happen to me. I feel like it's just in the fiber of this world. We believe that to be true. And so we're always trying to find out, what did I do wrong? Why is God punishing me for this? Why is he condemning me? Why has he abandoned me? We'll just look for that. We will look for something. And that's why, friends, why I believe that Paul made it so crystal clear to us in Romans chapter eight, that if we are in Christ, if we have bowed our knee to Christ, made him our king, made him our savior, trusted him with our life, that our sin has been paid for by him. He took the sin that we deserved. He stood, he hung in our place. So there is there no condemnation for us. This is how Paul explains it. Romans chapter eight, verses one and two. Now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. What's Paul saying? He's saying in the midst of suffering, God isn't going anywhere. He's not abandoning you. This isn't about condemnation. God isn't going anywhere. I want to highlight, if I can, just a little bit, a distinction between condemnation and consequences. Yes, there are things that we can do in life that bring about consequences to our sin and brokenness. But if we are in Christ, it is not condemnation. It is not abandonment from God. Because the gospel says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we've got to ask ourselves, how do we view God? Do we view God day to day through this lens of condemnation? Or do we view God through the lens of the gospel? Because the lens of condemnation would say, I've screwed up. Dad's gonna kill me. I've gotta move away. I've gotta run, I've gotta hide. Because I'm gonna be condemned, I'm gonna be abandoned. But the gospel says, I screwed up. I've gotta talk to dad. And instead of moving away, we go home. We go home to the one who saved us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. A third pitfall that I think we can fall into is our anger. And it's not that we have anger, it's how do we process our anger? Because in the midst of suffering, we are gonna experience anger depending on how the suffering came into our life. It could be anger that we feel toward God when we think he could have prevented this, he could have done something about this. It could be anger toward people when people have inflicted pain and suffering on us. 
It could be anger just at ourselves because we're experiencing the suffering that came as the consequence of our own wrongdoing. Anger can be everywhere. But here's one of the main messages of the book of Job. Job learned. Job learned how to process his anger. Job learned how to process all of his negative emotions. And you know how he did it? He did it in the presence of God. Job never, never stopped praying. He was always pursuing God. Did Job complain? Oh yeah, Job complained. Chapter upon chapter of complaining. But he complained to God. He was talking to him. Did Job doubt? Did he doubt God, doubt the goodness of God? Absolutely, Job doubted. But he doubted with God. He brought his doubts to him. Did Job scream and yell at God? Absolutely. Job pounded on the chest of God over and over, screaming, yelling, why? Why did you do this to me? But he knew that God was there. You can't pound on the chest of a God who isn't there. And Job shows us God can handle it. Bring your negative emotions to him. But don't walk away. Keep seeking him. Even in the midst of pain and suffering. When suffering falls on our life, and friends, unless you're the most fortunate person in the world, it's gonna hit all of us in some way or people that you love. We're gonna ask the question, why? Why, God, why did this happen? Job asked it. And to his question, why? He wanted an explanation. And he didn't get it. Job's friends, they wondered why too. But they thought the answer to it was gonna be condemnation. God's gonna bring his condemnation to Job for something that he did. They didn't get it either. They didn't get their answer to why. To all the people in this book, the why question was a mystery. And that makes me think, friends, that there's a different question that God wants us to ask in the midst of our pain and suffering, as real and as hard as it is, but it's not looking up to him and asking the question, why? It's holding our hands up to him and asking the question, who? Who? Who is worthy of my life? Who is worthy of my trust? Who created everything that I see? Who created me? Who can I trust with everything? Friends, that's where Job landed. He started there, and at the end of the book, he got there too. It wasn't about why. God never told him why. But he came to the answer. It's who. God, you and you alone are worthy of everything. And if we're gonna walk through pain and suffering, we've gotta move from the question why to the question who. I want to ask you to put your things aside and I want you to just move to a posture of prayer and I want you to sit before God and give him the final word in this message. Would you ask his Holy Spirit to speak to you? Is there something that he wants 
for you to grab a hold of today? And what is it that he wants you to do with that? What is your next step? How do I follow you in obedience, God? God, I'm just so aware right now that you know all things. There's nothing happening in and around our lives or our hearts that escape your notice. Lord, you know the questions that we're asking. God, you know my questions. You know Bob's questions. God, you know I far too often ask that question, why? God, why are you doing this? God, I want to be more like Job. God, I want to, even in the midst of hurt and pain, that I would trust you, that I wouldn't demand answers of you as if I could understand them anyway. God, I just want to lift my hands to you. And I want to declare with everything in me today, God, that I believe that you are worthy of my worship. You are worthy of all of my life. This world has nothing that I desire besides you. Lord, would you help us as a spiritual family here to follow Job's example? God, even as we sing here at the end, God, we wanna lift our hands and be reminded that you are a God that is worthy. Jesus, it's in your powerful and resurrected name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.